0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to everyone who jumped on board on my Patreon over the last uh, week or so. Ever since I announced last week I was having some issues with YouTube, some of my videos have been reviewed, some of them have not. As I'm uploading new videos, I'm finding that Facebook is, or sorry, YouTube is still kind of defaulting to, you know, not monetizing my videos and I'm not quite sure what this is all about as far as uh, what it is that I'm saying that's so advertiser unfriendly but it is you know it is still a thing and um Anyway, I just wanted to really give a shout out to all of you guys, um, I don't have the list of all of your names right now, because um, but it's kind of a long list, there were a bunch of guys who uh, came on I think about seven or so. so, and a couple of my existing Patreon supporters bumped up your uh, support too, so thank you all of you guys, really, uh, you know who you are and you're awesome. Uh, that all being said um, some really great content uh, went up this last week my interview with Tori was very well received and I hope all of you guys are watching that video because there have been a lot of weird blow-ups and quarrels and problems uh, you know in the in the critic community I guess you could say and this is nothing new this has been going on um You know, this happened back in the day with Tory. This happened again when Anonymous came around. This happened again when Going Clear came out. I mean, the Church of Scientology just ramps up its efforts to uh, to generate problems with us, including getting, uh, you know, critics feuding. And it's not like I'm going to, I'm not naming names. I'm not going to get into anything like that because it's all just drama and nonsense. And my job here is to get you guys the information you want and need about the church of Scientology and about undue influence and high control groups and, and destructive cults and, and critical thinking. And that's what I'm going to focus on and that's what my attention is on. And I'm going to try to really hard to keep it there. That all being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Jost Purr, do you have anything to say about the possible guilt that follows if somebody has worked as a cult recruiter for a long time and then, at some point, understands that has only been causing harm to other people. Thanks for this question. And uh, yeah, I have a few things to say about this. I'll speak from my own you know, feelings and experience uh, about it because I certainly, while I was in the church and after leaving, had different levels of guilt connected with uh, things that I had done as a Scientologist and as a Sea Org member. Um, I've made a video about, you know, uh, recruitment methods that were used in the Corg. Uh, really, you know, using conspiracy theory in order to generate fear mongering to create fear in the in the recruit prospect and get them to sign up for a billion-year contract in order to go save the world because they felt so freaked out about the fact that it might end tomorrow if they don't, which is all pure nonsense. Um, I discovered that that was nonsense while I was still in, while I was doing recruitment, and I definitely felt bad about that. And I and I saw I stopped using any of those methods in order to do recruitment, and kind of got myself off of Sea Org recruitment shortly after that. And I tried to, you know, make some amends for that by talking to another recruiter who was much better than I was, uh, had had been doing it for much longer as well. And I talked to him about my my problems and issues with you know using this this uh, debunked conspiracy theory to recruit people for the Sea Org and I got him to kinda mellow out on it and stop and and I never did get to the source of that whole thing and get him to stop because I was frankly afraid of the guy uh, at the time and I thought that you know if I tried to duke it out with him about conspiracy theory it would just get really ugly really fast and uh, you know, and as far as I know, he, he, even after he left the Sea Org, the guy still thinks that stuff. He's still a Scientologist. So um, anyway, I did. I made some effort. Was my point, and I did that because I did feel so bad about it. And that um, was really a very small version of of the guilt uh, that I felt versus after I left science, the Sea Org, and after I. Uh, found out about the betrayal and all that and found out about how bad it all was, um, it, it took me a while to first just get over my own anger and, and upset and betrayal uh, over you know, what had been done and the fact that I felt I had been taken advantage of and, and used by David Miscavige and Elrond Hubbard and all that. So, so at first there wasn't a lot of guilt particularly connected with that. It was just a lot of anger. Uh, a lot of outrage and, and a lot of uh, keyboard pounding and stuff, you know, trying to trying to uh, vent and then trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do about this? And, and I've talked about that at length. You guys know that stuff. So the guilt started setting in. <laughs> I'd say it took a few months, right? And then it started dawning on me that I had... Um, I mean, I think I felt it you know, from the get-go, but I think it, it, you know, it had to, the anger had to run some of its course first. And once the guilt started really kind of becoming a thing, it started really becoming even more important to me that I, that I speak out. And I think that was probably what motivated me as much as the anger. Um, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was 70-30, 60-40, uh, you know, anger versus the guilt. Um, that got me uh, to come out under my own name, right? In February, I think it was 2014, I started, did my first video with Karen Dale Carrier. And, uh, and that kind of grew, you know? Like after, I, after that happened, I just sort of started feeling like, you know, as time went on and as I learned more about Scientology, as I learned more about the methodologies and the destructive cult aspects of it, the, the worse I felt for having been part of it. The, I, there was outrage, but there was also this really bad feeling in the pit of my stomach about the fact that I had recruited people into this. I had recovered people back into Scientology. That was a real rough one because I was pretty good at recovering people. I got a lot of people back in. I mean, you know, I think it, I think the total figure one time when I was doing my production record, uh, was something like 70, 80 people, something like that, that I had rounded up and gotten back on uh, into orgs who otherwise would not have done that. And I felt really bad about that. Now, in in both of these cases, I, I guess, you know, where this is going is that I felt an urge and a need to make some kind of amends, to do something, uh you know, uh, above and beyond, I guess, or to do something, you know, that I would feel was effective somehow to, uh, to deal with what I had done in the past. And that was definitely a driver for me to do this channel and to do the, you know, to get going on the videos that I started doing myself in 2014 uh, right here on this channel and continue to do. And, and that just built You know, that and and uh, and the more I did, the less guilt I felt. Um, I I wasn't doing it only for that reason, but it was definitely a factor. Now, I watched, um, you know, Marty Rathbun came out of the church way before I did and started doing independent auditing down in Texas, and then was speaking out, and then was going on TV shows. And that was, you know, all that exposure in the Tampa Bay Times, the, uh, the SP Rundown article and all that, that was right, that was happening as I was leaving the church. So I watched, you know, a guy who I knew had dirty hands, who had, you know, uh, was very guilty conscience, or at least should have because uh, he had been second in command of Scientology and I watched him you know d- do what he was doing on TV on on, on lots of different things, um, exposing Scientology and I thought, you know I watched some people be very critical of him still and well he's not telling everything and well he's this and well he's that. And I thought, well yeah, but look at all the things that he's doing, you know and I uh, and I felt you know kind of, not not like I was uh, as guilty as I thought he might be, but I still felt like he was doing something that was, you know, proportionate to the, you know, maybe the amount of damage he had caused, not knowing how much damage he had caused, of course, over all those years. So this was just my own take on it, right or wrong, right? And, and probably wrong. Um, but I can only really say that in hindsight. At the time, it seemed like, you know, he was on the up and up. And. Um, and then, of course, he, you know, kind of crashed and burned. You know, with uh, with the court case being uh, pulled, and then with him now making videos and and talking trash about Leah and talking trash about you know me and other critics. I mean, he's. He's just done a whole 180, and and he's really made himself wholly irrelevant now, as far as a, the Scientology world of, of criticism goes, which I'm sure was the purpose of doing all those videos, was to make himself irrelevant. Um, as one factor, I mean, maybe there was a bonus of you know trying to reach some people in, in the in the world of Scientology to. To badmouth Leah's show, and maybe some Scientologists would look at that, and maybe they wouldn't. I don't. I don't know. I, I you know, it, it, the whole thing is just so damn weird. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But, um, but he certainly took himself out as a as a critic. Now, what does all this have to do with this guilt thing? What this has to do with this question is that now, in hindsight, really only can we really see this. Although, really, I should have seen it while it was happening. Um, you know, there's a difference between. Speaking out for purposes of self-aggrandizement or personal fame or personal satisfaction or something, which is what I think was driving him, versus uh, what what I've been doing, what what Mike and Leah have been doing, which I think is driven by this sense sort of this need to try to make up for some of what we participated in and, and what are some of our activities while we were Scientologists. Now of course I can't really speak for Mike or Leah, I'm just suppositioning here. I'm giving my own opinion about what I believe their motives to be or what part of their motives are with what they're doing, but I'm certainly talking about myself here. Um, that I'm driven to try to make up for some of what I did over all those years. and now we see that Marty was really not on that same page. So it's not, my point here, you know, in all this ramble about Marty is that it's not just about an action, about doing something, you know, like speaking out. It's about the intention behind it and about being able to get to a place where you can kind of forgive yourself. And, uh, and, you know, one other point that I'll get to in just a second on this, but I think this self-forgiveness point is actually really important because I did get to that point and uh, not because I was on some program where I, I, you know, I had to do X number of hours and then suddenly, oh, okay, good, I'm done now. Uh, it just sort of happened organically, right? I just kind of one day went so like, huh, yeah, I, you know, I really feel like I've, I've done a lot here. Uh, and of course I continue on because i'm I'm helping people and that's what this is all about for my for me and my channel. I don't think that was ever what was driving Marty, which is why he you know could could cave and turn, which I could never do i, I just 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 no way I could ever do what he did. Um, so I think that that is uh I think the intentions and the motive and the motivations behind why one is is doing this kind of activity, this kind of criticism, is important, right? Um, and I think that's pretty, probably pretty obvious or, or fairly apparent in looking at uh, what a person says, why, they're, why they say what they're doing, what they're doing, right? Or why they're doing what they're doing. So, um, so there's that. And the other thing, of course, is that the other part of this is not just speaking out, but also seeking out those people that I have harmed, Uh, through social media or in person and apologizing, right? Like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. I have done that. And I have been contacted by people that I harmed. A couple who were even, you know, mildly (laughs) kind of antagonistic to me, like, hey, you jerk, you know, you did this and this and this. And I was like, and I think they were ready for a fight or something. And I was like, you're right. I was awful. And I am so sorry for having been that way. And, um, you know, and being really honest about that and being really willing to, you know, to fess up to and be very, very wrong about, you know, what the actions that I that I took in the past. So I think that's also part of this, you know, self-forgiveness uh, sort of dealing with the guilt journey. And, um, and so now I've come to a place where I'm not really feeling a whole lot of guilt anymore about all those years that I was in. It bothers me. I have regrets, no no, no doubt about it, but I'm not plagued by, you know, the need to do what I'm doing now because of that guilt. Now I'm doing what I'm doing, not because I'm angry and not because I'm guilty, but because I am helping people and that's what I really, really want to do. And I know I'm helping people because people tell me that I'm helping them, not because I think that or I'm on some, you know, trumped up idea that I'm, I'm so good. It's I, I wouldn't particularly, I'm constantly surprised by the by the feedback I get from people as to how much help I'm actually able to give through the work that I've done. So, um, so now it's just kind of an honor and a privilege to be able to do that. And that's kind of the position I'm in now. So I hope all of what I just said doesn't, you know, might relate to some of, uh, you know, the experiences you guys have had, maybe in other groups or other situations, uh, you know, coming out of other religious activities or groups, as well as, of course, Scientology. So there you go. Katrine Barrett, how does the Sea Org define worker-oriented, and why is that considered a bad thing? Now Hubbard talks about how executives and managers in Scientology organizations should not be worker-oriented, meaning that they shouldn't be so concerned about the, the wages and the working conditions of the staff. They should be more concerned about how hard the staff are working and the effectiveness of the staff and whether they're actually getting their products or not, and Uh, you know, there should be, according to Hubbard's policies, there's a policy called rewards and penalties, uh, where Hubbard talks about how there should be rewards for staff members who do good work, but there should also be penalties. And, you know, and the penalties should be such that um, you know, that they're too gruesome to, to deal with and so you don't want to deal with those penalties and so you'll get done whatever it is that you've been assigned to get done or whatever targets you're supposed to meet so that you don't have to deal with these too gruesomes as we used to call them in Scientology, right? We made a noun out of it. That's a too gruesome. Uh, meaning a punishment that was so bad you, you you know you didn't want to deal with it. Scientology executives and managers tend to go in that direction because of the orientation of the whole or the the, the whole attitude that it comes from the top and goes down. Right? Um, Hubbard was was a little schizophrenic when it comes to uh, and I don't mean that like in some clinical sense. I mean he was a little schizophrenic in that you could never really tell one day to the next whether it was going to be, you know, salty or sweet, right? Whether he was going to be like, you know, ripping your face off or whether he was going to be giving you a, a pat and a bat and an attaboy for having done really great work. And, and so people around him were always walking around on eggshells, not knowing what was coming. Uh, Miscavige is just pretty much awful all the time. And, uh, and you know, m- maybe there might be periods where he, you know, re- gives some nice rewards or does some nice things, but that is very few and far between. Compared to people feeling, you know, his rage and temper, and that has rolled downhill to infilt- you know, to filter through all of Scientology's uh, organizational hierarchy. So this this worker-oriented thing is is something Hubbard started, where he basically was like, yeah, we're not so concerned about the workers' feelings, the workers' attitudes, the workers' uh, compensation. And uh, and he just sort of threw this out as sort of a management uh, method, right? This is just how executives are supposed to be. And um, and that has been a really big justification for Miscavige to act the way that he does and for Scientology staff members and Sea Org members to to take it, right? Because, well, we're not supposed to be worker-oriented here, Right, so they just kind of. This is just another one of the little mind landmines that Hubbard laid in his policies to justify bad behavior on the part of the executives and managers, and for the regular one-of-the-mill staff to just kind of, you know, uh, feel like they deserve whatever punishments and uh, and bad, poor working conditions they're getting. Roman Kowalschynek. I've been reading up the bridge on Tony Ortega's underground bunker website. He wrote about 1988 version of OT8 where a Scientologist learned that LRH was the reincarnation of Buddha, that Jesus Christ was not the figure most Christians made him out to be, that the book of Revelations had it wrong, the Antichrist is the good guy, and that he, LRH, was the Antichrist. Tony Ortega presents a good case that this was the original OT8 before it was pulled by Miscavige. It sounds more plausible for this to be LRH's big reveal than the URU that was presented on Leah Remini Scientology in the Aftermath. So my question is, considering that Jonestown was only 10 years old and the 1980s were the heyday of televangelism, is it possible that David Miscavige or someone else high up in Scientology decided that if the original OT8 material leaked, then the Church of Scientology could suffer a catastrophic backlash and it would be safer to pull the original OT8 and replace it with a more mundane URU OT8. Okay, well, I dug up a link to that article on Tony's blog, and I'm putting it in the description section below here so that you guys can check that out rather than me having to rehash the entire story. I think, I think most, of, most of the viewers here will understand uh, some of the references made in that question to the highest level of auditing that the Church of Scientology delivers. It's the, the top of the, of the bridge, OT8 and it had a few different versions and the first one is one that had Hubbard talking about the various things in this question. I don't think it was pulled or changed because of a fear that it would leak outside the church. The I, It's really hard to get across the level of security and paranoia that, is, that exists within the church over the leakage of, of OT materials. Uh, While the stories of how the OT materials got out in the first place are very funny and very interesting, nothing like that could ever happen now. Um, the, The church definitely learned its lesson and went way overboard on ever having anything leak out of the church as far as the OT materials go, which is why most of what we have of OT materials are old. And a lot of that has changed uh, to one degree or another over the years since that material leaked. So uh, so we don't really have exactly, precisely the, you know, the complete materials of the OT levels out here in the real world, right? And it might be really interesting if they could be made to leak at some point, but, you know, good luck with that because the security measures are, you know, put Fort Knox to shame. Now, that all being said, that's why I say that that it leaking out of the church was not the concern. The concern was that people would get onto OTA, read this, and freak out, which is exactly what I've heard happened. You know, people read about L. Ron Hubbard saying he was the Antichrist and that, that Jesus was the lover of uh, small boys or something like that, and uh and my God, you know there were there were OTAs who had been Christians, or maybe even if they're not now, they had had those beliefs, or people who were friendly to, you know, the ideas of Christianity, or the I, you know, the idea of, of the fact at least recognizing that seventy-five percent of the United States are Christians, and this material was highly inflammatory towards them, so. Uh, so they were, you know, there were some people doing this first, ver, first version of OT8 and freaking out. And I think that is what freaked out David Miscavige and everybody else connected with you know, the, having released those materials. So they decided, whoa, yeah, no, this isn't going to work. Now, that material was all contained in one bulletin. So all they had to do was pull that bulletin. I don't think, and, and I might be wrong about this, I don't remember all the specifics, but I don't know that the actual uh, auditing steps of OTA or the URU thing uh, changed that much. I think that was part of all of it, but I, you know, I, I reserve the right to be wrong about that. I'm just talking off the off the top of my head here. But the important thing was that they pulled that bulletin out of there. And uh, and that's no longer around. Now, I've, I've seen that bulletin, and, I, and I've, been, uh, I've read the whole thing many times, and I do believe that L. Ron Hubbard wrote it. There is controversy over that. It is a controversial issue for some people um, as to whether it's actually authentic or not, but I, I absolutely believe that that's Hubbard's uh, writing because it sounds exactly like Hubbard talks. And uh, and the beliefs and the the sort of some of the Gnostic stuff that's that's that this material is grounded in is something Hubbard was absolutely familiar with, and and had you know from his occult experiences and uh, with with Crowley's work and and uh, the OTO and and the other things Hubbard got himself involved in, uh, I, I could see how Hubbard could have those beliefs and would. Uh, put that into the big reveal at OT8 because it was the kind of thing that he definitely would not have said earlier, lower on the bridge, right? That would be something he'd want to give the highest level Scientologists uh, because he would trust them to keep their mouth shut. Uh, If only, right? Apparently not everybody kept their mouth shut because this did leak out. So that is uh, my thoughts on that particular point. Jonathan Mark is Dianetics, not OT levels, I refer only to Hubbard's 1950 book, any crazier than Freud or Reich? Wouldn't critical thinking invalidate the writings of the founders of Psychiatry too? Yes and no. I mean, I think at this point, I'm not, and I'm not an expert on Freud, I am, a, I am a, a, not a, I wouldn't say I'm a dabbler in Freud, but I, have a, I think I have a little more familiarity with it than that, but I have not read any of Freud's works or extensive summaries or, or layouts of of what Freud specifically talked about. So I have a I have a, a, a maybe slightly above average understanding of, of his work but not really much more than that. So I can't really say for sure that everything in, that Freud wrote is, is just flat out wrong. But I will say this Freud was somebody who was a pioneer in a field that was fresh and new at the time that he was doing his research and his writings. Freud did real research. Now we can uh, rag on Freud's methods and his research methods and we can rag on uh, his conclusions but at least he was making an honest effort, is my point. And I think intentions matter, and I think context matters. And given his time period, I mean, we're talking about the eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. So this was pioneer work that he was doing. Whether he, you know, got it right or wrong, at least he was moving the ball down the road and getting, you know, the idea that there could be a psychotherapy developed that would help people. That was not straight jackets and ice picks in the brain and locking people up and uh, torturing them, basically, which was what was going on in mental uh, homes and, and institutions, uh, at, you know, at that time. So here was somebody who at least was moving the ball forward uh, in a fairly constructive fashion. Um, I can't really talk about Reich at all. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know much of anything about that. Now, fast forward to L. Ron Hubbard in 1950, and here you have a guy who is using hypnotism in order to con people into thinking that they're feeling better. And that is what Dianetics, at its heart and soul, really is. Before the book was written and released, Hubbard was practicing hypnotism on these people. He changed the technique when he wrote Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, and then it still had uh, obvious hypnosis roots with the counting and the and the fluttering of the eyelids and the trance state a person is supposed to enter, but it wasn't straight up hypnotism. It was altered. It was modified hypnotism. Right. So it was it, hypnotism for the, you know, for the common person who didn't realize he was doing hypnotism. Right. It was much more uh, hidden. So Hubbard was all about uh, getting people to think something positive had happened to them or uh, you know sort of and maybe he maybe just to give him a little bit of benefit of the doubt maybe he thought that that was you know if they thought they were cured then they were cured right maybe he thought that that one you know six of one was half a dozen of another right um, but I don't think so I think he knew that there was a I, I think he was well aware that there was a con going on there um, so, so so, dianetics, you know, just just ripped off stuff from Freud's work from psychoanalysis, and mixed it all up with this hypnotism stuff, and put a bunch of scientific-sounding words in the middle of it, and called it a science. Well, it wasn't. It was. It's total pseudoscience. It, it is It's by, by practically the definition of pseudoscience is what dianetics is. So. Um, So I think it breaks down much more readily and much more rapidly to critical thinking than, you know, old school psychoanalysis. Uh, As I understand it, in the world of psychology and psychiatry, that old school psychoanalysis has been, uh, it has evolved into other things. People don't go back and do old school Freudian psychoanalysis anymore, and those concepts have changed and evolved as they should have because that's how science works as you as you go to this point somebody else comes along and they take it to this point somebody else comes along they move the ball down the road none of that's happening with Dianetics right so sure you can go back to Freud and you can apply some critical thinking and break it all down but what would be the use because it's not even being used anymore it's more of a historical sort of thing as i understand it okay so, uh, so I think there's a I think there's a difference there that can be appreciated, uh, and that's you know I, that's what I have to say about it. Chudley Cannon Fodder, I really enjoyed hearing you talk about Battlefield Earth. Have you read any of Hubbard's other sci-fi works? Have you read Mission Earth? Did you enjoy it as a Scientologist? Oh boy, Mission Earth. Uh, okay, so. Uh, I was never really a big fan of L. Ron Hubbard's fiction works. Um, I did like the book Battlefield Earth when I was in Scientology. It's only after I got out and I sort of thought back on it and looked at all the Scientology that's mixed throughout it and really kind of examined the story more critically, and I went, mm, yeah, no, I'm not not really a fan, right? Um, and that could have, you know, of course I was biased one way when I was in the church, I'm biased another way when I got out of the church, so my opinion is just whatever. Um, but when I was in, uh, I did like Battlefield Earth, and I did like a book that Hubbard wrote called the final, called Final Blackout. Uh, that was a, a work that I enjoyed reading, and I thought there was something of, of, of value to uh, what Hubbard was talking about with the military and, and how military people should be, and how you know armies should protect societies, this kind of thing. Other than that, I didn't really ever like much of anything that I read by Hubbard. And I read, you know, I tried to read a few of his pulps. Um, you know, some of his Pulp Fiction work, and then I did read Mission Earth. I read all ten books, and it was a chore. I mean, it was it was rough. Even as a Scientologist, I complained about it. Uh, I thought it was way bloated, way overlong, uh, far too much ridiculous nonsense going on in it. I didn't really like the satire that much. Uh, it, you know, the, supposedly it's a satire of, of modern society. Well, I didn't really, uh, you know, dig that. And, um, and by about the sixth or seventh, definitely by the seventh book, I was just reading it just to get through it, just to finish it, because, I, you know, you finish what you start. Uh, and I kind of wanted to see if it was ever going to get better, and it, and it never really did. It was just not a good piece of work. Um, I've heard conjecture that Hubbard didn't even write it or didn't, you know, that he had, uh, that maybe not all of it is, is actually his. I don't know. I don't know if it, if, if it was or wasn't. I don't know that it would have made it any better or any worse. It was just an awful, awful book. Uh, and I did tell other people when I was in the church that I didn't like it. You know, I did complain about it because I thought, well, this is fiction. I mean, you can complain about Hubbard's fiction works and not get thrown on an e meter and start being sex checked. Uh, you know, you start complaining about his the, the tech, and the Scientology stuff, and that's when people are going to get a little bit more serious about it. So, that was kind of my experience with all of that. Whoa! It is time for Flash Answers. Stuart Marcus, Chris, I'm confused. Are Stacy Brooks and Mark Rathbun in or out of the church? They're out. I talked about Marty earlier, and Stacey Brooks, who was part of the Lisa McPherson Trust back in the uh, early uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, um, when that thing folded. Uh, she's, she's out, as far as I know. She's not active in any way in the critic community or in the critic world. And, uh, and Marty, of course, we know, has just you know, made himself irrelevant. Gordon Weir. Are any of LRH's family members slash descendants Scientologists? If Scientology is so wonderful, how do they explain the fact that none of his descendants believe in his church? Hubbard's daughter, Diana, is still a Sea Org member working at the Int base at San Jacinto. Otherwise, Hubbard's, has no, no other family members are still involved with the church. And Scientologists don't get critical about that because they don't think about it. Nobody talks about Hubbard's family that much or even uh, asks questions about it particularly because Scientologists really don't care. It's not, that's not why they're in. Nibiru's 21. If you were to sift through everything Hubbard ever said and wrote about Dianetics and Scientology and took all that is true and good, in other words, anything that is of real value and can be useful, how much material would still be there? Dare I suggest a relatively thin book? If you were going to take everything in Scientology that was universally true, 100% of the time, like actual discoveries that actually meant something that were, that were applicable to all people in all circumstances, yeah, you'd have a pretty damn tiny book, maybe even a page. Um, there is a lot of principles and a lot of things and techniques in dynamics and Scientology that work on some people. And they have limited amounts of workability or limited amounts of use with people. Uh, none of Dianetics and Scientology is going to get you to where Hubbard says it's going to take you. So we can just write off all of the big exaggerated claims. But if we're going to talk about pieces of the tech that have that work sometimes but not all the time, well, quite a bit of it, um, but it claims that these techniques and that these ideas and these philosophical points are universally applicable and they work all the time. And that's a lie. That's just not true. So that's why I say if you were going to take it down to, you know, what is universally workable, really, really tiny amount. Okay, guys, so that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around. I hope you found these questions and answers informative, entertaining, and uh, educational. As always, uh, please like and share this video around the interwebs, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.